We're going to uh, have a look at this passage now, and um, there's some tricky things in it, aren't there? So let's ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Let's pray. Loving Father, please be with us this afternoon as we open your word together, as we explore what it means, and not just to understand, but so that we might apply it in our lives. Uh, Help us to be people who don't hear your word and then go away and forget what it says and do nothing about it. Instead, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts and our minds so that you'll work not only on our understanding but on our will uh, to desire to follow you and to trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in life we make important decisions. Um, Maybe as a parent you're facing the decision about where you're going to send your kids to school. That's a pretty important one. They're going to go to this school or that school. Is it going to be in area, out of area? Is it going to be a a Christian school? Is it going to be a Catholic school? Is it going to be a state school? You've got all sorts of questions. And I guess as a young parent, you're thinking these are big matters. Like, I I want to do the best thing that I can. Uh, Or maybe you are at school at the moment and you're reaching the point where you're going to be making decisions about what subjects to do. Are you going to study a language? Are you going to focus on maths and sciences? Or are you going to study um, humanities and uh, do English? And, or do you just want to do sport? Um, you've got to make decisions, don't you? Like, there's all sorts of decisions we make in life. Maybe it's, uh, it's, it's whether to go out with this person, whether you have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And of course, that leads to one of the biggest decisions that people make in life, and that is who they might marry. Uh, And if you marry, and I know that for some people that can be a a decision that comes with incredible pressure. It might come from the family of origin. It might come from the cultural background. It might come simply from the desire to get the decision right and uh, not get stuck with the wrong person for the rest of your life. And then that might lead to more decisions. Do you have kids? If so, how many kids? What types of kids? Well, you don't get to choose that one, do you? And uh, there's all sorts of things. Maybe there's a difficulty in getting pregnant. Do we go IVF? Do we do something else? Life is full of some pretty major decisions that we need to make. But sometimes we don't know which are the important decisions and which are the unimportant decisions. See, uh, a couple of um, months ago, well, it's probably half a year ago now, I had some pretty important decisions to make. I was going to be conducting a wedding, uh, a wedding of, uh, of Harry Smead and uh, Olivia Jaggers. They were going to be joining together in marriage. And I put a whole heap of time into working out the right words for the prayers, uh, making sure that I'd written out the uh, details of their wedding vows, having the talk written in a way that I could read it outdoors because it was going to be an outdoor wedding. I'd done all of these things. And I thought that I had all the decisions carefully in place. And then we were rushing to get to the wedding and I did something without even thinking about it. Uh, I went to the uh, premium petrol bowser and filled up my diesel Land Cruiser. See, all the decisions that I had invested in, well, they were nowhere near as important as which pump to use on that day. Um, It was an interesting day. I had to wing the entire wedding. Um, And I'm glad that I put in the preparation before, but that's kind of the reality, isn't it? We don't know which are the big decisions sometimes. 
I remember, um, this is a while back now, but when we had little kids, and Fiona and I hadn't been out for ages, uh, we, we made a, the decision to go out and to go to a movie and we had to get a babysitter in place and we poured over the newspaper as to what movies there were and kind of arguing about this one or that one and, and so on, eventually decided the movie we were going to watch. We're driving into the city to go to the movie and I made a quick decision to change lanes. Another car slammed into us from the side. We sat by the side of the road for two hours, didn't get to see a movie, which was the important decision. Now, with that in mind, I think that Matthew's gospel tells us what is the most important question that we can ever ask. In fact, it's a question that gets asked of us, first of all. Uh, if you're with us, when we looked at Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? He says that to the followers that are gathered with him. And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is the most important question and it gets answered by Peter. But as you go through Matthew's gospel, it's the implicit question on almost every page. Who is he? What's he come to do? By what authority does he do these things? Is he someone to take seriously? Is he a threat? Is he someone to trust? And this question about who Jesus is, is a question that centres in the passage that we're looking at today. You can see it there if you have a look down at verse 10 and 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. The whole city of Jerusalem is disrupted by what's going on. And they are all stirred and they asked, who is this? I, I think maybe they're saying... Who is this really? Let's get to the bottom of who is this person? By, by what authority? What's he on about? What's he saying? What's he doing? What does it mean? And then those who are with him, they answer. The crowd say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And friends, this question, who is Jesus, I believe the Bible tells us is the most important question that we can ask in life. And it's a question that gets addressed in this passage. And I think that it's in fact not simply an important personal question, but on a bigger scale, I believe this is the most important question in human history. So the events that are going on here are absolutely cosmically groundbreaking. And we'll see that when we dig into the answers to this question as to who Jesus is. So follow it through with me. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey in Matthew's Gospel, first of all. So if you've got a Bible there, you might like to try flipping around. I'll move fairly quickly, but the references are there. Don't worry too much if you're juggling different things. First of all, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So opening sentence of the gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew frames this gospel by telling us that the way to understand Jesus is to understand what it is to be the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, he puts it in history. And then you get this genealogy. And at the summary at the end of the genealogy, verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 
14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, I, I, I wonder sometimes whether this is pushing things too hard, but I'll share it with you because I think it does add flavour. And that is, in Hebrew, you don't write out numbers. Um, what you do is the numbers are reflected in letters. And in the name David, there are three letters, uh, what we would call in English D, V and D. And the numerical value of those letters is four, six and four. In other words, it's 14. And I think that's probably connected with this really nicely styled perspective on history. That is, Matthew wants you to think about David when you think about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah was the chosen king. And of course, the supreme king through the history was David. But David was promised a son, and we'll read about him in a minute. And so the framework that we ought to be thinking about is what does Matthew teach us about the son of David? Well, with that in mind, we go to chapter 9 and verses 27 to 30. Now, this is a while back when we were in Matthew chapter 9. But listen to these words, and it'll sound like what we just heard from Greg reading. Uh, Gary, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. It's kind of the same thing, isn't it? We hear that back in chapter 20, and here it is first time in chapter 9. And when he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and he said to them, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. So two blind men, they call out to Jesus, son of David. They call him Lord and they are healed of their blindness. But then look at what Jesus says. He warns them sternly, verse 30, see that no one knows about this. Jesus wants to keep this secret. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. At this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, he's keeping it secret that he is the son of David. That's his plan. But by the time you get to chapter 20 and 21, you see that it's no longer a secret. In chapter 20 and uh, verse 29, we read, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and followed him. Now the secret is out. It's a question that has been raised a couple of times, and I haven't read them in Matthew's Gospel. Who is this, this son of David? Now we see that Jesus is the Lord. The Lord was a, a title that you would use of God. He is the son of David. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the king who comes in the line of David. And as he enters to Jerusalem, 
You see what's going on there. They, they, the crowds are gathered about and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. See, to hear of the son of David was to hear something in the history of Israel that was climactic. This, this was the kind of thing that could start a riot. This is really kind of high-tension stuff. A king has arrived. The Messiah has come. One who answers the promises that were given to King David is on the scene. What are those promises? Well, we need to understand a little bit of the background. And we're going to be looking at this in term two when we do the whole Bible in 10 weeks. Um, we're not going to be reading at all, by the way, not during church. Um, but for now, let me just give you a quick glimpse as to the importance of the promise that gets made to David. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm going to read this. This is uh, Nathan the prophet speaking to King David. These are the words of God. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. See, God is speaking to David and he says, David's offspring is going to build a house. Now, of course, Solomon built a temple, but that's not the house that is in mind. Now, this is to be an eternal kingdom. The hope is that one will come who will fulfill God's promises, who will be a king forever in the line of David. And the people of Israel were looking towards this day when, when that king would arrive. And this passage, it's just dripping with fulfillment. Have, have a look at what you see there. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It, it's, it's taken from Zechariah chapter 9. It's a direct quote from, from Zechariah chapter 9. We, we probably don't spend a lot of time in Zechariah. If you're wondering where it is, it's the Old Testament. And it's almost the last book. It's the second last book. But listen to this promise that was given to Zechariah or through Zechariah to the people. Uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. In the middle there of this great promise of God's Messiah coming, he comes as the king riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, and these words are picked up in Matthew's gospel and they fulfill what was said through the prophet. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus sends them off to find a donkey and the foal of a donkey. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem and as he comes into Jerusalem, 
The crowds go ahead and they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Again, quotes from the Old Testament. Isaiah, um, sorry, Psalm. No, Isaiah. Can't be Isaiah. Must be Psalm 118. Oh, yeah, I can't read. It's Psalm 118. And verses 22 and, and um, following. Listen to these words. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's familiar, isn't it? The Lord has done this. It's marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with bows, bows in hand, Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will exalt you. You are my God and I will exalt you. See, there's a, a wonderful promise that the Messiah will come, that, that God will come. And these words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they apply to Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. See, this is all happening in fulfilment of God's promises. And Matthew's conscious of this. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken. Down in verse 13, it is written. Down in verse 16, Jesus says, have you never read? There's a conscious application to applying scripture and fulfilling it. That's what's going on. Now, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. What does he do when he gets into Jerusalem? Book into a nice hotel? No, he goes to the temple. And again, there's an Old Testament kind of allusion to that. And, um, and he goes into the temple and we read of him turning over the tables. He overturns the tables of the money changers, of those who are buying and selling there, and the benches of those selling doves. As it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, when we look at this, I think it stands out to us. And we're probably fascinated by Jesus' actions. I mean, he comes into the religious centre of Jerusalem, um, into the outer court, and he just tosses the tables. What's going on? Um, maybe some people like to have this as a, as a kind of justification for their anger. Well, be careful, be careful. What's Jesus doing? See, I think we're fascinated by the turning of tables, but the real action, if I can presume to say the real action is in verse 14 in verse 14 the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them yes Jesus overturns the tables um, he's angry with what's taking place there but the, the religious authorities don't seem to get upset about that what upsets them is that the blind and the lame come to the temple and Jesus heals them. That really gets up the nose of the religious authorities. Let's read on, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So the religious authorities are upset with what? Jesus being called the son of David. And Jesus 
turns the tables on the hypocrites, but he welcomes in those who didn't normally have access to the temple. They were unclean. The blind and the lame, and Jesus has mercy on them, and he heals them. And we read that the religious authorities are upset at what Jesus says and what he does, and what the children say about him. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? You see, the real action here is that the Messiah has come to welcome people, people who are unclean, people who are separated, people who have no access to God, into relationship with God, whereas these religious hypocrites are doing all that they can to make it difficult for people. In fact, we see then in Jesus' response um, another perspective, I think, on the tossing of the tables. Early in the morning, uh, verse 18, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, this is tricky stuff, isn't it? What's, what's going on here? I mean, is Jesus just having a bad day? Upset the temple, upset, he's hungry, he's hangry. Is that it? I, I know, I, I credit Jesus with a lot more than that. Now, if you compare Matthew's gospel with Mark's gospel... You, you get the same event, but you get another lens, another kind of camera angle. Um, what Mark does is he has the record of Jesus cursing the fig tree, and then you read about turning the tables in the temple, and then the disciples noticing that the fig tree um, has withered. And Mark's gospel often sandwiches events together so that one aspect informs the other. And I think we need to see that here as well. Because the fig tree is used in the Bible for the people of Israel or the leaders of Israel. And Jesus knows his seasons. He knows whether there's going to be fruit and whether there's not going to be fruit. and He's not taken by surprise. I take it that what Jesus is doing here is it's an object lesson, an acted parable, if you like. And when you think about the religious leaders that he's turned the tables on and you think about him coming into Jerusalem and seeing fruitlessness on this fig tree, I take it that what he is seeing in reality, looking into the hearts of people, is the fruitlessness of Jerusalem, particularly Israel's leaders in Jerusalem. And he brings his judgment upon them. Jesus cursing the fig tree, it's kind of like a, a proleptic parable of his judgment. 
And again and again, we see Jesus speaking harshly at hypocritical leaders. Um, Stay tuned for chapter 23. Woe to you Pharisees. We're we're going to see a lot more of that to come. The, The question in verse 20, how did the fig tree wither so quickly, the disciples asked, gets answered by Jesus in verse 21. Well, not directly, but Jesus' answer is, truly I tell you, if you have faith... And do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea. How does that follow? And what did the mountain do wrong? Um, What's going on with that? It's it's tricky, isn't it? Well, a, a couple of things to note. First of all, it matters a lot. It matters a lot. And how do I know that? Because Jesus starts his sentence in verse 21 with, truly I tell you. Literally, amen is the way he begins, not finishes. So truly I tell you. In other words, this is a significant thing. And Jesus sees it having significance to what has just taken place. So there's some connection between the acted parable of judgment and what Jesus is now talking about and then going on to say about the, uh, the mountain. It's a big deal. The next thing to say is that it's not the first time Jesus has spoken about throwing mountains into the sea. So if you are with us a few weeks ago, or probably a couple of months ago now, I think, um, was it your passage, Nathan? I think Jesus, back in chapter 17, in uh, chapter 17, where is it? Yeah, verse 20. Um, the, the disciples are having trouble driving out a demon. Uh, the disciples come to Jesus in private. Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing is impossible for you. So I, I'd be a little cautious about nailing down mountain as the key thing. Again, I suggest to you that Jesus is using um, faith as small as a mustard seed. Well, that's minimal faith, just a little bit of faith. Something as big as a mountain, well, that's a major issue. And he's putting together these things, the prayer of faith and major outcome. Now, there are some who suggest, and I'll just give you this if you're a Bible scholar, that when Jesus says this, he's standing on the Mount of Olives And maybe he has in mind Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, where this promise is made. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, on that day, speaking of the Messiah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. Now, Jesus doesn't say any mountain, he says this mountain, and he's there on the Mount of Olives. But I still favour this being a kind of general parable kind of way of speaking about things that are big, that things that are, that are difficult, things that will have a, a, a powerful outcome. So putting all that together, what, what's he saying? Well, we'll come to that. I want to draw out some implications with you and start with Jesus. Now... There are a number of issues that flow from this. First of all, who is Jesus? That's a question we all need to ask. Who is he? 
Well, he's the son of David. He's the promised Messiah. He's the saviour. He's the judge. He is the key to understanding life. He's the centrepiece of history. Who am I? Well, we used to introduce ourselves by saying, hi, I'm Dave, I'm a pastor, or I'm John and I'm a teacher, or I'm Mary and I'm a shopkeeper, or I'm Martha and I'm the Prime Minister. Right? There used to be this kind of association with what we do and who we are. I think there's still something of that around, but there are other ways we define ourselves. It might be thinking about our looks, it might be thinking about our interests, our, our achievements, all number of things. Interestingly, what's becoming the prevailing identifier in our society is sexuality. I am gay, or I am queer, or I am bi, or I am hetero, or whatever. Jesus, I think, helps us to understand that if he's at the centre and we trust in him, then, then we are first and foremost in Christ. That's who we are. That's the heart, the core, the essence of our identity. We are people who are made in God's image. We're restored in God's image. We're children of God. We're saved. We're forgiven. We're justified. We're cleansed. We're raised. We're united with Christ. That's our identity. Jesus is number one, therefore we see ourselves in him. And what do we see about Jesus? Well, we see his mercy. Jesus loves to bring about healing. He loves to free people from whatever oppression is facing them. And he loves to see people forgiven and brought into relationship with God. But don't misunderstand him. He's also the judge. And he will not tolerate religious hypocrisy. You can't go through the motions. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. No, Jesus is our saviour, but if we reject our saviour, then one day we'll meet him as our judge. And this passage reminds us of the dangers of sin and of hypocrisy and gives us the warning of that day of judgment. And that is a warning to us and it's a warning to those we love. And so our lips should be filled with the praises of Jesus that others might come to know him. And this is a passage, in conclusion, that encourages us, I think, to pray. To submit to God, to his will, to ask him for his will to be at work in our lives. And the promise here from Jesus is that we can ask God for extraordinary things. Now, you might be a little troubled by the words that are here if you have faith and do not doubt. I mean, what, what's, what's the place of doubt? Does this mean you've got to be 100% sure? The idea of doubt here is double-minded, as it is in James when he talks about faith and doubt. That is, you can't have a foot in both camps. If you're going to truly have your faith in Jesus, you've got to jump in with both feet. That's what it's saying. And if you jump in with both feet, if, if you pray, trusting in God, if you have the attitude of trust, then that means you're trusting God to do what is best. This is not a kind of um, unconditional credit card with God. A God, give me the, um, the latest and greatest of four drives. And give me that holiday to 
wherever. Or fix up this in my life because I don't like it. Now, God may give us those prayers, but he will give us what's best. So take this verse in isolation from the rest of Scripture um, and, and make it a, a kind of like do as you want. It's to turn God into a genie. Rub him. Pray with faith. And you'll get a box of Tim Tams. No, I think true faith in God is to trust in God to be God. It's the posture that we come to God. It's the attitude that we come to God. It's, it's the worldview that God is at the centre. And if God's at the centre, then what a privilege it is to be able to pray in faith to God. So let us do that. Well, I've gone for a couple of minutes too long. So um, how about I lead in prayer and um, we'll stop. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we just pray that you'll speak it into our hearts now, uh, that you help us to trust you and um, whatever's going on in our lives, please um, may Jesus be central and not us. Amen.